Welcome to Religion and Global Challenges, the podcast of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme. My name is Marlene Schäfers, and I am one of the hosts of this show. Previous episodes of our podcast focused on the politics of martyrdom and on the unfolding of everyday life in the face of religious difference. Today, we will start a new mini-series in which we will look at the intersections of religion and spirituality with man-made climate change. For our first episode, I'm joined today by Dr. Tobias Müller, who is an affiliated lecturer at the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge, and he's also a postdoctoral researcher at Leiden University in The Hague. My work on climate change really comes from, well, I think a personal passion for, for the topic and the dire situation, the code red for humanity, as the IPCC report says we are in. So the question really, how do how does any societal group, any group that understands itself as a community or even has a moral mission, react um, in the face of climate breakdown? I'm a political scientist and sociologist and scholar of religion, and I'm interested in how different religious groups relate to politics, are political actors, relate to the state and relate to yeah, some of the biggest political challenges and climate change, of course, being one of them. In November 2021, we saw the world converge in Glasgow for the UN Climate Change Conference, COP26. And there was, of course, a lot of public coverage of the event. But the role that religious and faith communities played during the negotiations has somewhat I would say, escaped the focus of public attention. And so you were in Glasgow during COP26. And I would like to ask you, can you tell us a little bit what you observed there and maybe give us a little bit of an impression of the different kinds of communities, spiritual, faith, religious, whatever you may want to call them, that are part of this broader field of climate activism and climate practice, broadly speaking? Yeah, thank you for that question. It was it was really fascinating because I really didn't know what to expect before coming to Glasgow. Uh, what I had read before, um, obviously, were the statements by kind of the Pope and other faith leaders coming together, calling for decisive action. And that coming together of 40 faith leaders in the, in the Vatican in October, I think, was quite remarkable already. For instance, the Sheikh of the Al-Azhar University Mosque in Cairo said, young people need to be ready to fight for anyone who... Um, or against anyone who destroys the climate. So that I found a really kind of strong statement from an institution that isn't well known to be the most progressive one. So when I came to Glasgow, and now also thinking about it back, I think I didn't find religion necessarily there where I expected it. So I would have thought, well, there might be the Catholic group and the Sunni Muslim groups uh, maybe, and uh, like they kind of uh, will be with under their own banner as it were. But what I rather found actually that there has been a religion as a, at a much deeper level, if you want, or a much more disseminated, decentralized level. And I want to start with really talking about the religion or religiosity of indigenous communities, which of course challenges our understanding of what religion is. Very often we think about the Abrahamic faiths and Christianity, Islam, da da da. But actually, a lot of the indigenous communities that were there, and they were very present um, from the Amazon um, in particular, from uh, Latin America, but also all sorts of other indigenous territories, is that they understand themselves, they describe themselves as defenders of their sacred lands. Before their protest, they invoke the ancestors. They invoke 
the elders, they invoke the traditions that are sacred to them. They use the language of, of sacredness. They go into places like there was one demonstration um, in front of uh, the entrance to the conference center as a ceremony, as a procession. It's, it's consciously created or created. That's maybe how they uh, see it as well as a, a religious and as a sacred act. And they're also the boundary between religion and politics that in Western European understandings is, is quite clear cut, is very blurred, is a boundary that they question very consciously. And of course, we did see um, things like more kind of drawing on more traditional religious tropes. For instance, there was a Camino to Cop, which means uh, there was a kind of long pilgrimage, 500 miles over 55 days by the group called Christian Climate Action. There were pilgrims that I met that came from Sweden, from Germany, from Spain, who really walked to Glasgow, invoking that old tradition of a Christian pilgrimage, or obviously other traditions have this as well, to the experiences that you have on the way to meet with the communities that there they are. They've been hosted in community centers and so on, speaking with them. What does climate change mean for you? What does it mean for you as a religious person and so on? And then bringing those messages to Glasgow itself. In the end, I think, of course, the public attention, because you mentioned the media as well, I think was very much on, well, what, what did the leaders actually, what would happen in the blue zone, as it were? And then kind of the very big, and if you want very, I don't want to say sexy, but kind of the, the topics that everybody wants to know, like what did Greta do, what was colorful, what was artsy and so on. And I think there, the, the economies of attention are not necessarily in favor of religious groups during the actual conference. I was wondering if you could also reflect then a little bit about how these types of spiritualities also influence groups that are perhaps on the surface quite secular. So something like Extinction Rebellion, um, who, as you actually told me, consider their practice as sacred earth activism or they begin their meetings also with these kind of more spiritually sounding statements. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the role of spirituality even within groups that might not have this very explicit link to a religious community, to a spiritual community. But then also, if you have observed anything like this, what might be some of the contestations or the discussions around these kind of more spiritual practices? Yeah, thanks. That's, that's something I was also surprised to learn when I first started my fieldwork with the environmental movement and with Extinction Rebellion in, in particular, that there is an aspect that is, if you want ceremonial, I think that's a, a ritualistic um, from a kind of study of religion perspective. And you, yeah, you mentioned already the solemn intention statement and like to briefly kind of read out the first um, sentence so that maybe listeners get a, get a feel for it. So imagine like around you, you have police cars already or you're going to block a bridge or something like that. So there's a lot of tension and then suddenly it's quiet and someone says these words. Let's take a moment, this moment, to consider why we are here. Let's remember our love for this beautiful planet that feeds, nourishes and sustains us. Let's remember our love for the whole of humanity in all corners of the world. And then at the end, as we act today, may we find the courage to bring a sense of peace, love and appreciation to everyone we encounter, to every word we speak and to every action we make. We are here for all of us. Right? Like, it's very powerful particular language that of course refers to creating community through saying one thing like the same thing kind of repeating it which is a, a core element of many religious traditions and that a lot of people i know find that this 
these words actually have a particular power also to bind community together to give consolation strength purpose now i would say that within extinction rebellion to take this as an example there is also a clear tension because on the one hand of course the movement says trust the science follow the science the science is clear we know that we're in an absolutely dire state and that every tenth of a degree of warming means probably hundreds of thousands of people dying and on the other hand uh, extinction rebellion was also innovating through these so-called uh, regenerative cultures so very consciously at the beginning visioning was baked into the movement so this idea that whatever you do should be following a certain vision of where you want to go and that uh, regeneration and also the practices that go along with it are part of it that is for instance that ranges from mindfulness over to different yoga practices, but also to much more consciously spiritual, like heart coherence practices or like invoking the sacredness in everybody. So there is also, if you want the, the more sacred activism wing, where literally people like from also kind of pagan rituals that would do things on uh, at Stonehenge, uh, um, at solstice and so on, like those people bringing all their practices in very naturally. And so, the big rebellions in the UK, at least, they start with an opening ceremony and with a closing ceremony and often kind of indigenous uh, practices are being invoked there as well. So, yeah, I find it is an interesting tension. And at the moment, this is heatedly debated as well, which role that kind of sacred and more indigenous and also global majority oriented activism should have as contrast to we follow the science, we do one thing, we know it works and that's it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it brings me to a topic that I wanted to to ask you about, which is precisely this question of science and religion, because science plays, as you just mentioned, such a big role in the discussions that we have around climate change. Um, so a lot of the discussions, um, you know, will often focus on this call that we need to listen to the scientists. This is, a, you know, one of one of the core calls of big figures like Greta Thunberg, but also various other kinds of governmental organizations and so on. And so um, in these debates, at least as you can, when you follow them on sort of mainstream media, it sometimes seems as if religious communities are the exact opposite of science in the sense that, you know, they're hopelessly invested in climate denialism, they are opposed to reason, to enlightened knowledge practices. And so I think what you are kind of showing is, in, in fact, that it's much more complicated that the relation between religion, science and climate change activism actually goes not across very strict religious secular lines, but um, where science would fall clearly onto the side of secularism. And then religion is this kind of other to the enlightened knowledge practices of modernity. But what we actually see is how these things are much more complex and contradictory. Um, so can you maybe entangle this, disentangle this a little bit for us of how, you know, how we can think about these kind of relations between science and religion in the context of climate change? First of all, I would say, if we say it's about science and religion, then we're actually missing the most important part. And that part is politics. So, for instance, a lot of topics that now we take as totally normal, normally distributed um, along the lines of religion, for instance, abortion or uh, gender equality um, or creationism and so on, was actually not that much a political issue up until the 1950s, 1960s. Of course, there were more conservative views and so on, but it was only with the rise of the so-called moral majority in the States, for instance, in the 70s and 80s, that this became such an important political issue and people's attitudes would really um, kind of align along religious lines. So the question is always, 
where does a topic fall on these kind of constructed um, lines and by whom is it instrumentalized for what reason? Same is true for evangelicals, actually. Up until 2010, evangelicals didn't necessarily have a strong opinions on climate change. Up until 2011, 12, 13, when people realized as well, the fossil fuel industry realized that this, the climate movement and climate science is a real danger to their business models. And also, um, yeah, there was an alliance, I think, with uh, conservative evangelical forces in the, in the US to really make this a political issue. It's about them taking away our way of life and our religion. And that's why I think we now we see these um, divides as well. So I would say there is one diversity in every religious tradition so every text has an interpretation that pitch, pits uh, religion against science in one way or another uh, but the same time is all, the same is also true and the other uh, way around so there's always uh, interpretations by people who say following the science is no problem at all i mean god gave us reason and understanding and so on that we can be scientists in the first place so where, where's the issue so the question that we should be asking is which group are you we talking about in which historical period and in which place and but that's why i'm also very skeptical about these kind of very broad especially antagonistic claims i think most of the time they're just not a reflection of reality of course these conflicts are there absolutely i'm not saying that religion has been extraordinarily good at denying science for hundreds of years absolutely they have but it's then certain institutions and certain groups um, that are also often political so I think what we need to do in order to bridge that and disentangle that, if you want, is really talk about the concrete concerns and issues. In London, for instance, we have the North London Incinerator, which is a kind of also a campaign from Extinction Rebellion, but also Black Lives Matter and also kind of local community groups. It's clear it's, it, this incinerator is dangerous to people's health. So you don't have to agree on kind of modern Western science or something like that in order to rally and campaign against it. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's also helpful in trying to break down this broad category of the religious um, or religion, because we can see how, in fact, there are so many different iterations of religiosity throughout history and across space. But one thing that I'm, I'm interested in then to hear, maybe based a little bit on your observations at COP26 and also your broader fieldwork, is, you know, what are, if we break down this category of religious communities, what kind of alliances do you see emerging? Like how do these different communities, let's say, you know, various Muslim communities, Christian, indigenous, where do they find points of commonality and alliance? But what are also the points of difference and debate between these different groups? I think you see two different uh, strands emerging in the climate movement. I think one is a, a strand of people who have a certain affinity to the spiritual or the sacred. And this can come from all sorts of corners. It can be people who have doing, been doing yoga or mindfulness um, or anthroposophy or maybe have been religious in the past, but not really practicing anymore. So general openness, maybe some, some hippie practices um, and so on. And they, I think, are very open. I think the alliance is there with indigenous communities, this like centering elders um, of indigenous groups and their struggles and their worldviews as well, like providing platforms for alternative ways of seeing the world. Uh, so the Zapatistas have a slogan for this is a it's one no and many yeses. There's a, a world in which many worlds fit. So some people have different understandings of how the world looks like and how it works and how uh, the temporal and the 
the present um a kind of eternity and the present how dead people are like souls and spirits and so on are present how energy flies so i think there's a certain field of resonance um if you want but that is not it's slightly different from people who say how do we get muslim communities to act on this which is also something that is of course being done and you would, uh, for instance, in the Extinction Rebellion, have those organized in the Faith Bridge, kind of which is a multi-faith organization. But then, interestingly, the organization of XR classifies them as a community group, right? So they're kind of almost like a special interest group, like XR working class or XR farmers or something like that. Whereas I think these more kind of spiritual practices and so on, they are actually more able, I would say, to disseminate their practices across all of the movement. There's um, one attempt, for instance, to bring co-liberation as one of the practices into XR and, and beyond. And a lot of that comes from Skina Rato, one of the co-founders who describes herself as a Sufi, very spiritual person doing a lot of sacred activism. And that is then something that actually gets disseminated across the movement much more than, say, Christian wisdom on the ecology or something like that. You don't see that in a movement like XR. So, so what do the people that try to convince the organizations do. For instance, during COP, XR Muslims decided to do outreach in Leicester, to actually not come to Glasgow necessarily, of course, some members did, but to actually go into the communities and try to have these conversations on the streets uh, where the people are. In August, uh, some activists from Christian Climate Action occupied St. Paul's Cathedral. And in the end, like after service, and 12 people got arrested, actually, because the um, Anglican Church um, asked the police to arrest them. So I would say these are kind of two different fields away that religion is kind of taking shape and shaping the, the climate movement. What you've just outlined, in a way, suggests that if we look at religion in this broad sense and take into consideration these different kind of approaches and perspectives, that rather than being this, you know, grand opposite of science, religion can actually be a resource in the fight against climate change. And so what then would be your recommendations for engaging religious communities and drawing more religious communities into the collective action against climate change? That's exactly the question that I've been wondering a long time, again, having grown up in a religious community and having tried to kind of push my own church um, towards climate action and failing catastrophically. And so what I tried to do in, in a, and I've written about that in a, in a recent op-ed in Nature, is to, to not think it as a, okay, here are things you should do because it's your moral imperative or your religious, your sacred duty and so on. Um, but I think the first thing is really to, especially if it's not your own community, but in general, to start with a certain humility. Don't pretend you know more than they and that you know something that they now need to learn. Because very often, particularly in the West, religious people are just fed up with being seen as the problem and often being uh, stigmatized, particularly non-Christian religion. There's a certain suspicion that they are not fully understanding what we, as a kind of constructed uh, Western, rational, secular, European mindset then um, understands. Because of course, one, it, it's wrong. I mean, the destruction of the planet on that scale is a very much an invention of western modernity and colonialism um so in that sense i think there's first very very hard questions that i think uh, western secular liberals need to ask themselves how they have constructed a system that is so suicidal which even the scientists themselves now agree do right so i think starting with that assumption of saying even if you're completely atheistic whatever agnostic 
um, scientists to say, we haven't figured this out. We are fighting a fight. So basically we're in a, in a similar situation in, in that regard. I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is um, really being ready for mutual learning. I think we all get inspiration often through stories and images and quotes, whatever, and really being open to like hear experiences. Thirdly, I think you should try to cooperate with people who do that already. Chances are in that religious community that you're thinking about right now, the mosque down the road or the, the synagogue, uh, there are already groups that are active, that do these things. So trying to cooperate with them, learning from them, what are their, actually their actual struggles? What are they trying to do? And where are they at? To not assume that you're the first person kind of um, coming up with that. There are disagreements about whether interfaith is a good idea in that regard. So I had an exchange with Catherine Hayhoe, who's a self-declared evangelical Christian in the US, but also one of the most important climate scientists there. And she argues that often if it's interfaith, people don't ask the hard questions because they, they try to have so much respect of the other traditions and try to display themselves with all their beauty and uh, wisdom and justice that their religion is putting forward, that you actually don't get to the core issue. I personally think interfaith is really, really important, but actually it really got me thinking that sometimes staying within your religious tradition actually might uh, might be more powerful or even within your church to make it really specific, to ask the, the hard questions as it were, because most of the time you're also talking about institutions so i think as a political scientist of course i would say know the institutions where the decisions being made on what basis that's less about uh is the science convincing or not but rather whom do you need to talk to if you do direct action which which doors do you need to block right and then i think really telling stories this is something that we all know but what, what we get moved usually i think when we when our emotions when our heart is into something when our own skin is in the game as well so tell a story about how each community will look like in 30 40 50 years like how it will be difficult to to wash your hands for ablutions who would do uh, for a muslim community if there's water shortages or how hundreds of millions of people in the philippines and other places uh, won't be that their churches will just be underwater then another element and that's true probably also for non-religious communities is bring the local in really talk about what is happening on the ground here and the BBC has these amazing maps now um, showing kind of how actually climate change in 2050 years will impact your local area. Where is the, the flood risks? And if you can show a Londoner to say, oh yeah, actually large parts of London will be regularly flooded. And already we see kind of uh, tube stations being flooded now almost every month. To really make it extremely local, show what it will have an effect for your, for your life. And then finally, I've experienced that the best conversations happen if you're actually there in your own integrity and as a person with your own vulnerabilities with your own positionalities don't pretend that you're kind of the objective scientists have that tendency often to 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 take themselves out of the context no we are all we come from somewhere we all have our own biases and backgrounds and own stories uh, bring them in show show your own questions uh, misunderstandings maybe your own journey drink and eat with the people be there be present and particularly pay attention to the conversations that happen before and after the official ones those are often the most meaningful and, and important ones as you were just talking about this point of you know asking the really hard questions i was thinking about what you mentioned earlier in our conversation where you were talking about how um, these indigenous groups at cop26 or other occasions bring in certain kinds of practices that are then kind of proliferated um, within broader climate 
change activism and how you have how these kind of indigenous uh, religious communities become a source of inspiration for certain types of practices, as you described in Extinction Rebelling, how you have a certain kind of opening statement at meetings, how you have a kind of sacred earth activism type of thing, which I imagine is, or as you outlined, draws very much on these kind of indigenous uh, spiritualities. But I was wondering then, is there a danger of sort of an appropriation of indigenous types of ontologies and epistemologies within this broader movement when it comes to how, you know, movements that are mainly based in the West and where people are probably from quite middle-class secular backgrounds kind of take up these these practices. I mean, is there a discussion around this? Is this, is this seen as a problem? What have your observations been in this regard? I do think this is a problem because you cannot just simply kind of mimic a tradition or a, a ritual or words or whatever and uh, pretend as if they wouldn't have a context, as you say, the context of appropriation. And I think that it's really important that we know our history and uh, the ways that we have made this, as Europeans have made this mistake um, innumerable times in the past. So there is the trope of the noble savage, of course, that um, Edward Said is also writing about so that you say like, well, indigenous people, obviously, they have it all right. Um, and we just need to be like them or learn from them. That I don't think would be true to their experiences, but also, of course, is is dangerous in, in that it can reproduce other different types of, of stereotypes that then don't help us to actually go to the systemic um, issues. My experience is that there has been a certain hesitation for exactly that reason among the climate movement in Western Europe, say kind of Fridays for Future, Extinction Rebellion, to, to consciously say, this is a, a Sioux ritual that we're now performing or something like that. I don't think that they do that. One way to go about this is to actually think, what would it mean to decolonize ourselves and think about the decolonize, decolonization of our own mindsets from our ancestral ways of relating to nature? And then there are very different opinions about that, but some people consciously say, well, we are maybe Celts or, or Germanic, or there were Druids around here. There were people who had strong rituals with the earth. So what if we use some of those? So that's kind of one answer, kind of the, the neo-pagan answer, if you want, or just really thinking about seasons, thinking about what we can learn from the plants and the nature around us. Um, and what are the stories and the ways to relate to that? I think that's one way. The other way, and I think that's the most exciting and interesting one, is to say we cannot, because of the fear of uh, appropriation and othering, just ignore them. Often it's being said, amplify the voices, don't talk about them, but uh, really kind of feature these voices. So often statements are being read out that are drafted by people from the global south. So that, that is one way. Of course, if you can bring people here and like speak, have them speak themselves, and this happens very much in Glasgow, I think this is actually one of the most striking things in Glasgow, that 50% of all the panels I was at were people of color, and it was always more than 50% women. And a lot of indigenous people from the Amazon, from the Andes, um, from Turtle Island, uh, North America, from Sub-Saharan Africa, and from South Asia, East Asia, and so on as well, that they were very present, they were there, and they told their story. So I think really kind of stepping back and listen. And I think understanding yourself and your organization as being in that partnership and seeking out these communities, championing their causes, um, learning from them, that is one way where can, one can avoid these issues. However, this is not going to be comfortable. 
it will require very thorough questioning of yourself of where our racism still sits because it is there where our patriarchy still sits where our attachment to economic models that are exploitative, where our understandings of private property um, leads to devastation in other parts of the globe. So it is very much to what we hold dear that we need to be ready to question, I think. It's not an easy add-on. It is a, a very thorough process of, yeah, of, I think, decolonizing your, the mind, decolonizing yourself and asking very tough questions about what you've done so far in your life. What you just said really points at this question that is becoming increasingly discussed also in mainstream media is exactly this question of how does climate change affect people differently based on who they are and where they live in the world. So one of the things that is by now I think pretty clear is that the global south bears in many ways the brunt of climate change produced still very much in the global north. But even then within specific geographies we see that depending on your race, your gender or your class position, Uh, you might be quite differently affected by climate change. So even, let's say, in the global north, if you're a black working class and a woman, you are probably quite differently affected by climate change than if you don't have these attributes. So I think this this is something that is more and more coming into the conversation that we have to differentiate climate change, which looks like this big overall overarching event that we have to differentiate the kind of power hierarchies You know, in the face of all of this, how do you think that religion can diversify and broaden um, the demands for a carbon zero world that we hear so much uttered by the by the climate movement by thinking about climate justice alongside things like gender and racial justice? I think that is uh, one of the most important uh, things to think about for the future of the climate movement, because so many social movements and progressive movements have fallen over the, the question of race because they haven't taken it seriously and they haven't consciously taken race to be a central element that divides society, that is in instrumentalized, instrumentalized racism, as Ian Haney Lopez uh, calls it. So climate inaction is racism, is one of the, the slogans of the movement. And I think religion has an interesting role to play here in various ways. So one, it is very clear that the vast majority of very religious people don't live in Europe. And that just realization that the stories and the people dealing with the impacts of climate change already now, and these stories are there, they just need to be listened to and they need to be told. So I think actually religious groups have enormous potential to foreground the stories of their own brothers and sisters. I mean, religion is designed in the beginning if you want to transcend political boundaries. Of course, often it also that uh, goes hand in hand. But um, a lot of religions these days claim that uh, their main allegiance is to the community of believers, to the Ummah, to other people who, who believe similar to the, what they do. So if, the, if they take that seriously and actually think about what their own actions and of course the actions of their own governments and the fossil fuel companies and agricultural companies and so on that uh, are the main emitters of greenhouse gases, what they are actually doing to their own brothers and sisters, then I think there's an enormous potential for change and also joint activities and these kind of north-south corporations, if you want. I think also that we should not underestimate how important gender and the patriarchy is in all of this. So the first thing, of course, is that if there is a crisis, the ones that suffer most are often mothers and their children, because they are the ones that take care, especially in crisis situations, of the care work, of the sustenance of the family and of the security. And this is even more true in many global South societies, particularly in societies where you have a lot of migrant labor or kind of uh, yeah, men living, living far away, 
um, for various reasons. So climate crisis is always also a crisis of gender justice, if you want, or of the situation of women. And if we if we ignore that, I think that it's very easy to fall into these trap, traps of uh, techno-modernist um, solutions that just believe we can kind of tech our way out of it. And if we don't take that seriously, again, we won't have those support systems that are needed for the crisis that we're already facing at the breakdown, like some sort of breakdown we will see. And when, uh, as we've seen with COVID, right, when the supply chains break down, who's affected first? Of course, poor people and those people who don't have the opportunities to travel between countries, refugees, that's, a, that's another issue. If we build societies that cut ourselves off from the suffering of these people and allows them to drown when we just would need to open a border to save lives, then this will only exacerbate with the hundreds of millions of climate refugees that we are likely to see. So in that sense, I think we need to learn from the intersectional feminists that have pioneered these questions already in the 60s and the 70s. And um, we're very critical of white liberal feminism. And I think that same criticism is true for white liberal environmentalism. So a lot of the debates are there. The texts are there. You can read the beautiful poems by, by Audre Lorde. And also religion has a historic responsibility. I mean, religion, I think, was very active in supporting colonialism, uh, Christianity, of course, in particular, from the 16th century onwards. So there's also a reparation to be done. There's a recognition of guilt, of, of having erred, of having been very, very wrong and on the wrong side of history. And I think there's a there's a historic responsibility to live up to bringing the plantation scene, as Donna Haraway calls it, into being in the first place by providing the justification for these exploitative practices. So I think there's a lot of historical digging to do and then not come with uh, we have all the solutions, but really with a humility and self-reflectivity that then should be translated into action. I have one last question for you, and that's relates to this idea that sometimes people voice that climate change is in fact a crisis of the imagination. And so do you think, based on your observations, that religion broadly understood has the power to allow us to overcome this crisis of the imagination? And if so, how? Yes, it does have the power. Whether it will is a very different question. I think it has the power because religious groups and traditions are among the richest sources of, of stories and of moral reasoning about the human condition that we have. That doesn't mean that other forms that are non-religious aren't equally wonderful and rich and so on. Like, I don't want to make a kind of a judgment here. But I think for a lot of people, and again, just remember that more than 80% of the people in the world consider themselves to be religious. So there's just, if you think about the majorities of the world, a very clear case to be made. But also in the the long-term reflections that have been there on what it means to be human and how to deal with injustice, how to deal with, uh, with poverty, how to deal with political systems that enact these injustices. I think the question of when civil resistance is necessary has been something that is alive in religious traditions ever since there were religious persecutions. So I think, yes, there is an enormous capacity of visioning, of thinking beyond the status quo. I think often we are lulled in by the descriptions of the world that uh, kind of the fossil fuel companies and the car industry and so on wants us to believe that people demand our things, they buy our things, hence they need it, which is of course a very powerful claim. But I think if you actually, and this is certainly true in my work, if you ask the people, did you actually consent to any of those things? Do you think this is is actually what you want. Josh Monbiot makes this point very poignantly as well. And then most people would say, no, no, actually, we, I don't think that's the case. So 
that of course raises question about our democratic system and who it represents and whom and the question what other forms of politics can emerge and again religions have been very good at producing extremely authoritarian and hierarchical political structures but sometimes they also have been at the forefront of equality and and liberation such as the civil rights movement or liberation theology and the mutazilites in islam and, and so on so you have these traditions as well to really radically rethink democracy to radically rethink politics and to rethink what kind of a world we want to live in like it doesn't have to be a world where happiness is linked to consumption i think there is an enormous act of convincing of people to be made because for us i think private property and consumption is so dearly tied to to a good life where are the spaces where we can have good conversations about the good life it's not only religious groups but i think they have been doing that for quite some time so bringing that more into the conversation i think would be really really important. We as people concerned about the future of humanity would do ourselves a massive disservice if we discounted religion. Thank you for joining us for this first episode in our latest mini-series on the intersections between religion and spirituality with man-made climate change. We will continue exploring these issues in the coming episodes, so don't forget to like our show and to subscribe on all the major podcast platforms. You can find more information about this and previous episodes, including recommended readings, on our website at interfaith.cam.ac.uk slash podcast. <laughs>